0: We do not follow man-made fancy or fable, but the word of the living God. He alone has claim to our hearts and allegiances. Let us heed him as he speaks through his word. Today's passage is from 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord.
1: If you've been with us lately, you might notice that this is not um, a psalm which we've been preaching through this summer. Um, and just a word or two before we pray and dive into this actually um, about bigger picture. So I normally just preach through books of the Bible and we're going to start that again soon. But the situation is we finished our series on some of the psalms last Sunday. and the next four weeks, I will not be here. Don't worry, um, Bob Crusader and Jordan, and it'll be great. You know, you'll hear good stuff from good folks, but I will be writing a book in the month of August, and then in the first weekend of er, of September, we are going to start preaching through Exodus. But we have one kind of floating week here, and I wanted to use that as a chance to revisit some foundational things, some things that I think... It is easy for us to go, get so busy going off on other things that we don't come back to. And so that's what we're going to do from this text from First Peter. But first, let's just pray. God and Father, I pray that you would be with us as we spend some time in your word, that you would be speaking to us and teaching us, that you would challenge all of us sinners as we sit under it, and that you would be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So here's the the foundational question, right, that that we're going to ask today, which is just what does it mean to be a Christian? And that seems like a question that all of us think we have the answer to, but let me just suggest right up front that maybe it's not always as evident as we think. I mean, I think about, like, we hear all the time, I do, about, like, Christians and Christianity in the world or in our nation. Um but i'm always left wondering like what do we mean by that like like 76 percent of americans right say i am a christian if you you know if you ask them what religion they are um which uh, that's a lot of people um but if you ask any more questions it starts to get more fuzzy so like if you ask do you believe that jesus was god which is if i had one question (laughs) that would define like what does it mean you know to say you're a christian like that has to be like real close to the top right um 61% of Americans would say yes. So 15% of Americans, right, who say that they're Christians, that's 45 million people, um don't actually think that Jesus is God. Um the same is true of the resurrection. You get a similar number. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If you ask, do you need Jesus for salvation? 40% of Americans would say yes, right? And so already you're starting to think, wow, that gets fuzzy. Or on another level, I hear a lot about evangelical Christians, which technically, in the way that demographers divide things up, we would be an evangelical church. I hear about that all the time on the news in terms of society and politics and stuff. Um, And um, 35% of Americans would be categorized as evangelical, by which they mean that a survey person just asked them, are you evangelical (laughs) or born again, right? Um, But then if you... um, If you try to get more specific, um, one organization, for example, just has a list of a few questions to try to say, like, these are the things that evangelicals believe, right? So the questions are like, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Do you believe you're saved by grace and not your good works? Do um, you—did Jesus live a sinless life on earth? Or um, should you share the good news of Jesus with with others, right? They just have this list of questions like that that are pretty basic for, like, yeah, that's what evangelicalism is. If you ask people those questions and define it that way— the number goes from 35% of Americans to 6% of Americans um, who would agree with the answers to those questions. And even that gets problematic because we're still just talking about stuff you say, right? And obviously, being a Christian is something more than just what boxes you check or how you answer questions on a survey. It has to mean something internal, right? About our heart and life, too. Because I totally know people who would give all of the right answers on those sorts of surveys, but who. I don't know how how sure I feel about sometimes. So that all of that means that question is important. What does it mean to be a Christian? That question matters because given everything that we've just said, there's a good chance that some people are wrong. Um, I think a lot of people have a sense that they're a christian the way that I say well My family is german, right? Which means that we're stubborn and have trouble taking charity and i've eaten sauerkraut more than once in my life Um, and and we think that you know being a christian is sort of like that just like an interesting quirk of my cultural heritage But if it's something more than that Then that means that I need to stop and reexamine that What does it mean to be a christian? That's really a question that Peter, in this letter of 1 Peter, is trying to help his followers to, or his readers to answer. In chapter 1, he addresses the letter like this. He says it's to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The elect exiles, which is kind of the theme of his letter. These people who are elect, chosen by God, but exiles. They're God's people that are living um, in places that are not their home. They're scattered across the nations. And Peter lists all these specific, you know, regions of the world where the people he's writing to are. And Peter's concern is to take these people from all these different places and try to say to them, this is what it means for you to be Christian. And so what I want us to do this morning is just look at this text and see how it answers that question, what does it mean to be a Christian, to see what Peter's answer is here, and then given what that means, to talk about living into that. And so let me just give you first what I think Peter's answer is in sum, and then we're going to break it down. Um, Peter in this text, I think, would say a Christian is a person who has encountered Jesus, received a new identity, and therefore joined a new people person who has encountered Jesus, received a new identity, and therefore joined a new people. So let's break that apart. First, a Christian is someone who has encountered Jesus. It's not something you just get as part of your heritage. It's something you experience and embrace personally. So like in verse 3, Peter in verse 2 calls us to grow up in our salvation. He says, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's his image of the beginning of the Christian life, is tasting the goodness of the Lord. That is intimate language. It's a language of an experience that we have. Not just that we've heard it or that we've assented to the idea that the Lord is good, but we've tasted of his goodness. And we've done that because we've come to him, in verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone. We'll talk more about what that means about him being a living stone in just a minute But Peter is talking about people who have come to jesus somehow There's been this movement and change in their position and in their lives Or a little later. He quotes isaiah 28 as he talks about that image of a living stone And he says see I lay a stone in zion a chosen and precious cornerstone And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame So what does it mean to come to jesus? It means to trust in him And again, notice that's personal. That's describing something internal, something that we do in our hearts. If I'm not trusting in Jesus, if I haven't come to him, if I haven't tasted of him for myself, then I'm not a part of this thing that Peter is talking about. So the first part is that a Christian is someone who has encountered Jesus for themselves. Now there's more we're going to say, but there's that first basic question that is so important to ask from this text, and that's simply have we done that? Have we encountered Jesus in that way? And when I ask that question, there's really two kinds of people that I want to speak to, and the first kind is the person who I ask that question and they feel terrified. Um, I think for some of us, we kind of struggle with the sense of uncertainty, Because we're so fearful that we haven't, like, really encountered Jesus, really done that for real, um, that we have this kind of low-grade anxiety about our faith. Um, I grew up in these kind of revivalistic churches where there were altar calls every other Sunday, and, and there were people that would come every other Sunday, right? You know, because they were worried that maybe the last hundred times hadn't stuck. Um, And if you're that kind of person, look, you have encountered Jesus, okay? I think the issue that you might have is that you hear this language of tasting and coming and trusting, and what you think is that that's supposed to mean, like, poof, right? Like, everything is just magically transformed and perfect in your life, and that's not what we're talking about, all right? Um, If that's you, though, let's spend some time in the rest of the sermon. We're going to talk about the other components of that, and that's really what you're being called to live into But there's another kind of person who I feel like can make the opposite mistake Who says like, oh, yeah, you know, i'm a christian I I grew up in the midwest and go to church sometimes and you know Went to sunday school some and saw those like flannel graph stories and stuff Um, and that's all great But it is possible Um, it's even likely I think at times that you can do all of that and never have encountered Jesus in that kind of real taste and trust way um and if that's you, before any of the rest of what we're going to say this morning, just please spend some time wrestling with that question, right? Because because if, if, if any, none of the rest of the stuff that we're going to say today, like, works without that encounter being the beginning of it, all right? And so if that's you, or you have questions about that, while we're going to move into other things, please just wrestle with that this week come talk to me about it and let's talk through what it means to have really had that kind of encounter so that's the first part of peter's thing right a christian is someone who has encountered jesus but that isn't all that he says then he says that that encounter has caused us to receive a new identity our sense of identity of who we are is changed by that encounter So verse 2 tells us the result of tasting god's goodness that we should want more of it Peter says like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk So that by it you may grow up in your salvation So it's not just that we've tasted of god's goodness But that we should desire more of it should desire to drink it in and learn more about it and be grown up um, Into our salvation. It's changing something about our lives The same thing is true of that image of Jesus as the living stone. Like we said, we were going to come back to that. But in verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we have this image of a living stone, and that image is from the Old Testament, Peter quotes a couple of different verses, but the idea he's saying is that there's two sides of that with Jesus. Jesus is this living stone who on the one hand is rejected by those who should want to build on him, but on the other hand is chosen by God to build this people. So Peter says that Jesus is a living stone, but then he says that we are to be like living stones. That Jesus is somehow the beginning of this thing, but I'm supposed to understand that that somehow changes my identity as well. That Jesus' identity becomes my identity, and then I'm somehow being built up into this thing in the world that reflects Jesus. Or one more example of that new identity. In verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's spiritual possession. ...that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful life. The thing to notice about that for now is that Peter gives each of these different categories... ...and what he's really doing is giving all of the categories that people in his world used to understand their identity. So you're a chosen people or race, right? That's the word for that. And that echoes that picture of Old Testament Israel... Um, and their sense of kind of ethnic chosenness, but he's, he's focusing on that. And then a royal priesthood, which is like your station and place in society, right? This is what I do. This is where I fit. And then a holy nation, so their sense of national identity and citizenship. And then God's special possession, Which is the language of ownership and in peter's world when you think about like what things identify you It was your ethnicity and it was what station you filled in society And it was what nationality you were and it was in peter's world who owned you because most people Actually were owned by you know and belonged by other people Those were the ways that you would define your identity And peter is saying that each of those is somehow new and changed by god now that doesn't mean that there aren't secondary ways that we still bear these identity markers from the world, right? I have a worldly nationality and an ethnicity and station in society. But what Peter is saying um, is that each of those things is, is secondary to and is in a sense almost relativized by our identity as Christian. That whenever those things would turn us aside from what it means to follow Jesus, whenever they would divide us from a brother or sister in Christ, whenever they would um, cause me to behave in a way that is not the way that God calls me to behave, then that means that I'm violating my truest identity. Jesus is supposed to redefine how I understand myself, who I am. I'm a Christian more than I am any of those other things. Let me try to make that concrete, right? Because talking about our identity can be kind of abstract. So this is saying that being a Christian doesn't just mean we've encountered Jesus, but it means that we're living a new life, but not just a new life in the way that we tend to picture it. I feel like, I don't know, I grew up in the church, and I hear about people talking about, like, living a new life as Christians, but it almost always had this really surface-level meaning. It was like um, we'd, we'd identify these, like, These changes like I became a christian and so I stopped like doing cocaine or you know Using the f word when I talked to my mother and i'm not recommending either of those practices to you, right? But um, but but the problem with those really surface things is that peter's image Stresses that being a christian means we should change a new life on a much deeper level than just those sorts of behaviors It's that our priorities in the world, the way we understand ourselves in the world, should be transformed by Jesus Christ. That we should value the things that God values. People, peace with our neighbors, and working good in the world. We should value those things more than we value worldly stuff. That we should be generous with our time and our love particularly generous and loving towards those that god loves and prioritizes who are the least able to repay us that we should seek to lay down our lives for others the way jesus does that our hearts and priorities should be different and hence we should live in the world differently and again we could spend a ton of time unpacking all of that in some ways most sermons are unpacking some little piece of what that means but for now what I want us to just wrestle with as we get back to that question we're asking, again, is are we doing that? And are we willing to do that? Is it, is Jesus something that we're willing to say, this is the thing that I want to define for me, what it means to be a human being in the world? Is my loyalty to him greater than my loyalty to these these other things that I want to find meaning in? And again, if you're in a place where you're wondering or struggling with that, let's talk, right? The point of these questions is not to just, like, leave you in that place, but it's to remind us that we need to, to lean into this Christianity thing, right? So a Christian is someone who has encountered Jesus and who's received a new identity. But then Peter adds a third part to it. And it's the part that I think maybe we struggle with the most. But um, it's, he'd say that we have also joined a new people. We've become a part of a new community. So if you look at verse 9, again, when he says you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, um, those labels, like we said, are about identity, but those labels are all also about community, right? It's not just describing us individually, which is like, I am not a chosen people, yes? I am a person, and we together are the chosen people. Um, I am not a holy nation. I am a citizen of that nation But when peter says that he's describing this corporate reality And that's why then in verse 10 he really stresses that he says once you were not a people But now you are the people of god once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy So when we encountered Jesus, we were separate from each other. We were not a people, right? But in encountering Jesus, somehow we are being made a people. And he he anchors that on the reality that we've received mercy from God. That's the thing that changes us into that people. So that somehow by encountering God and experiencing his mercy, that changes my relationship with him. But it's also changing my relationship with these people around me. That's why leading into this section, Peter warns against the particular sins that can destroy such a community in verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. If we're becoming a part of a new people, we need to be especially mindful of those sins that hurt us in our togetherness. And Peter also stresses that sense of community in his image of being living stones in verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That second thing is another one of those just corporate pictures, but I'm not being built into a spiritual house either, right? We are, right? One, one block of stone is not a house to, to have the walls raised up. It's a picture of us being built together. So all of these images are stressing this idea that we are somehow being made Together as a people of god when we become a christian And that leads to an important third reality But I feel like especially in our individualistic world. It's a challenging one So let me state it in the way that I think is true But some people will probably find challenging and then let's talk about it because there are some things we need to clarify I would say that what peter is saying and what scripture says Is that you cannot be living as a christian without being a part of christ's church You cannot be living as a Christian without being a part of Christ's church. Now, like I said, that's hard for us in our modern world. I think we really struggle with that kind of statement. So first, let me clarify a few things about that, all right? First of all, what what we're talking about is living as a Christian. And that's actually an important phrase because I think many of us in evangelical Protestant churches tend to get confused between that and this question about can you be saved all right Can you be saved just meaning can you experience god's salvation? Um, Can you do that separate from the church? Absolutely, right? You are saved by grace alone through faith alone in jesus christ, right? But that's a really small question. I mean that's you know Can you be saved and you know and just go around shooting people afterwards like I mean sort of the answer is like Theoretically, yes, right? I don't know that that's true. But the problem is that the point of salvation is always to lead us into becoming Christians and living as Christians, right? Focusing on that question of can you be saved gives you a really impoverished understanding of what Christianity is supposed to be. Um, So a true encounter with God, right, which is what we're talking about when we say can you be saved, that's meant to give us a new identity, like we already said, and that identity isn't just an individual identity, but it is also an identity that we share with God's people. Part of our new identity is that we are a part of this people of God. And so, and so thinking that we can live as a Christian... Um, You know without without living out that identity with each other is like thinking that that I can be adopted into a family Right. I get adopted and I can you know live as that adopted member of that family But I don't take their name and I never speak to those people and I don't spend any time with those people, right? It just doesn't work Another struggle I think with that idea that living as a christian means living as a part of christ's church Um, is that we can struggle with our picture of, you know, of church, right, which we've talked about before. Um, The church isn't just, it's not just saying, like, living as a Christian means you've got to participate in this one-hour activity on Sunday mornings that somehow makes you holy or something. The church, right, is the community and people of God. That's what Peter's talking about. This is a part of that thing. This is a formative part of that thing. But living as a part of the church means living as a part of that family of God in relationship with each other in a community of faith and I think many people also wrestle with that idea because um, because they wrestle with the idea of the church right they object to it by noting what mess the church is I think this is maybe in our world the biggest reason people struggle with that idea that living as a Christian means living as a part of the church we're like because they're like Jesus is great but the church is terrible Um, and first of all There are some terrible churches in the world, right? Before you push back on that, I think it's important to acknowledge that that um, stems in part from very real sin on the part of the church. Um, There are um, pastors who are arrogant and tyrannical and people who are backbiting and deeply hypocritical. And I want to name that because for some of us, when we wrestle with that objection, there's this deep emotional component. Especially for those who have been abused um, In 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 ways by by people within the church like if that is you While you're still in the end called to figure out how to live as a part of the church Mostly my heart just bleeds for you. I know that that is not what we're talking about that thing, right? Um, that, That that is not what the church is and that frankly There is a special place in hell for people who would abuse their authority in christ's church And I mean that biblically and theologically so if that is you, know, that, the, you know that, that Jesus is on your side. But there's a lot of others of us who I think we say that, and we don't, we're, we're not dealing with those kinds of deep heart wounds. Instead, what we're dealing with is, um, is another set of things. And if that's you, I'd maybe just ask you to think about two realities. One is that just in general, our perceptions of things are often shaped by our choice of what to look at. That is true of life, it's true of how we relate with other human beings, and it is true of the church that we can choose to look at the things that are wrong or on the things that are beautiful. And every church, that's a struggle that we have to walk through because while there are certain places that are warped in those really dark ways, every church is a mixture of sin and beauty. Um, In every church, there are issues— And it's good to be identifying those issues, right? But it's also crucial for us to be recognizing the good and beautiful things that God is doing there. And so I'd ask you first to just spend some time reflecting on whether you're really looking at things clearly or whether you're just kind of picking out the problems. And then secondly, while every church has issues, the other question I have for you is just what did you expect That is what Christianity is about. Sinners experiencing the grace of Jesus, which forgives them and helps them to begin to try to learn how to grow and be righteous and love. Right? And that means that the church should be a place that's growing and that Jesus is active, but it does also mean that there is always going to be sin in the church. And I think that's actually kind of good news, right? Because it means when we're really honest about our hearts that the church is a place for people like us. Perhaps the greatest danger of, um, of having this sense that the church should be perfect before we want to be a part of it is that if the church is perfect, we will end up um, like Groucho Marx, who famously said that I don't care to belong to any club that will have me as a member we should expect the messiness and sin of the church because it's a community of messy people that is seeking to learn to follow Jesus. I've said it before, echoing things that are just central to my priorities as a pastor. The church is not meant to be a country club for righteous people, right? It's meant to be a hospital for the sin sick. But if that's the case, then we're going to encounter some sick people when we come here. So we're joined to that new people. That is part of what it means for Peter to be a Christian. But let me then follow that up with two more specific questions, which is why do we need to do that? Why is the church and God's people so important? And then how? Why and how? First of all, why? Why is the church an important part of how we understand being a Christian? The truth is there are probably 20 answers to that, but let me just suggest two coming out of what we've said this morning. The first is that we need to be a part of this people if we're going to actually be able to develop the new identity that Jesus wants us to have. We need each other if we're really going to develop the identity that Jesus wants us to have. Um, I was reading the other day about um, spies and espionage stuff because that's one of the things that interests me. One of the interesting, there was just this interesting aside um, about how one of the the, the things that people have noticed and that's become more common over the last hundred years is um, what's called cell theory for espionage, which is to say that rather than being about individuals, it focuses on this idea of um, having small cells of people together who carry out things, right? And that's everything from, like, the way that different nations recruit spies to resistance networks to, you know, to Al-Qaeda, right? Everybody has kind of recognized that cells... um, Um, work better than just having individual people and the reason for that in part is just because teamwork is effective and stuff right but in part it's because they've realized that when you have individuals oftentimes their motivation and sense of who they are gets messed up when they're engaged in spies or espionage or whatever it's the danger like for an undercover cop right who who spends so much time in this organization that they start to forget, right, that, you know, that there is an undercover cop. Um, and so what they need is this group of people around them to reaffirm for them, like, this is who we are, this is what we're about, this is, you know, this is why we're doing what we're doing, that helps shape their entity, their identity. And the church is, in a real sense, God's cell network in this world. We are exiles, remember, Peter would say, with an identity that rests in Jesus's kingdom But if we try to do that alone, we often end up in the same state as those who try to infiltrate some hostile territory alone. We need each other's support to remind us of who we are and who we're supposed to be. And then who we are supposed to be is another reason that we need the church and we need each other. Um, If you look at verse 9 again... Peter has a strong sense that our identity together leads us as our mission He says what you're a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation god's special possession so that You may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light If you've been with us in our adult education class One of the themes you've heard in the last few weeks is that god Calls israel in the you know in in the old testament um, in order to be a light to show forth his glory and goodness to the world. That's their purpose and mission. Um, and Jesus, while they very imperfectly lived that out, Jesus comes to fulfill and embody that even more for us. That that's our mission, to be this people who are this light showing forth God's glory and goodness to the world. But we, um, we are to declare the praises of God, you know, Peter says, in the midst of the world. And we do that by being a holy people. Um, A chosen people, a holy nation, by being that together, which is in part just to recognize that that task is too big for any one of us, right? I can't show God's glory and goodness to the whole world. But more than that, it's to remind us that how we live together is actually part of how we accomplish that mission. That it is by treating each other with the love and forgiveness and kindness that we are supposed, that God calls us to show that by doing that, we are actually showing God's glory and goodness to the world. I think it's easy to focus on how, on how really like twisted churches, ingrown communities of spite and backbiting can drive people away from Jesus. And that is absolutely true. But the other side is equally true which is places that show forth that kind of love and delight in each other and that seek to build each other up and grow together as Jesus's church. Those places actually draw people to Jesus. So that's why. And then the last question is how, how do we live into that calling? Um, and I want to suggest one specific thing that I'm asking you guys to think about, which is part of why we're doing this one-off sermon, but then also I want to note a more general thing, and a specific thing um, is that in the next few weeks, we're going to be inviting y'all, for those of you that aren't a part of it, to to engage with our small group ministry here at Kish. If you're not familiar with that, um, the way that works is we have small groups. They meet twice a month for a time of just growth and, you know, and learning about Jesus together and fellowship, and then they do kind of a social thing every month or two as well. Um, and, um, we launched small groups a year ago, um, and it's gone really well for the last year. We've got, um, something like between a third and a half of, you know, of everyone connected with KISH is engaged in one. I know a lot of folks have come up and told me how, what a delight it's been to spend this time getting to know people. But I know lots of people aren't connected in that way as well. And so, um, I want to just, as a specific application, invite you, if that's you, to think about potentially joining a small group. We have, um, in your bulletin, there's a little quarter sheet, which I don't have in my bulletin apparently, but you can find it in there. Um, And all you have to do, if you're interested, is you can sign up um, with your information and indicate a night of the week. Two very practical notes. One, um, it says Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We do not have small groups on Friday night. But I apparently am incapable of remembering that when I made the little sheet. All right? So don't choose Friday. <laughs> um, and if you can choose a couple nights, if, you know, like two nights would work for you, that would help us a lot. But if you'd be interested in signing up and joining a small group, um, it's a good thing and is also, if you feel stressed, like I can't make it all the time or whatever, that's fine, right? No, nobody makes it all the time to small groups, and um, and life is hard. But if this is something you'd be interested in kind of joining to, um, just sign up if you're interested, and we'll get you in touch with somebody. Um, and look, as I say all of that, I always struggle with that specific application. So on the one hand, right, you don't have to do that. It is, I cannot, there is no Bible verse that says that, you have to sign up for one of Kish's small groups, right? But, but the reason we're doing this is because it is so easy in general to feel like, yeah, community's great, and I want to get to know people, and that's great in general, and then get busy with life and, you know and, um, you know, and kids and, you know, craziness and all of that, and it just never happens, right? Our hope in this is to provide a specific way, uh, you know, that you can give a specific time to connect with a specific group of people that will help you grow in that community. So that's the specific thing I'd call us to do. And then generally, as we close, um, I'd like to suggest that part of how we live into that community is by changing our mental picture of what the church is. Just changing our mental picture of what the community of faith is. Look, when, when we picture the church, I mean, we start by picturing like a building, Um, Even though we all or many of us know you're not supposed to picture a building, right? And then like we picture this right, (laughs) you know, we picture this group of people standing in this place Um, But what I want to suggest instead is that you spend some time just meditating on a picture That that should then inform how we treat each other And that picture really draws us as we prepare to come to the lord's table here in a minute um, And celebrate it the lord's supper One of the striking things to me as I was thinking about preparing for it this morning is how much it really touches on everything we've just said about what it means to be a Christian. The Lord's Supper, first of all, is about encountering Jesus Christ. A Christian is someone who has encountered Jesus and this table is meant to be a time when we each come and experience that presence for ourselves. I mean, when when Peter talks about tasting that the Lord is good, right? What more can you know, what, what more vivid image can we have than of recognizing Jesus calling us as we taste um, you know, the bread and the, the juice that we recognize that we are taste that we are called to taste of his goodness. And a Christian is someone who has a new identity, like we said. And the table is meant to define that identity for us as well. That the act of coming to it is meant to shape us. We do it again and again as a mark that we are God's people. And we do it to proclaim the Lord's death to ourselves and to each other. So the table does those things, but it also reminds us that we are a part of a new people. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. For we all partake of one bread. So he's saying there right. You take the bread and you eat it. And you're called not just to look at the bread and at Jesus. But to look around at all the other people taking it. And recognize that you are one with them in the same way that the bread is all part of the same loaf. Which is to say, here's the picture I invite you to have, both this morning and a moment as we come to the Lord's table, and as you think about the church, right? Is this is the table of God, and this is the table that you're seated at, feasting with Jesus, and this is the table that all these other people are sitting at too. Right? That th- those those images of, you know, a of, of family gathered around the holiday table laughing and talking and in community with each other. That this table is that table of community for us as Jesus's church. As we prepare to come to the table, then I'd invite you this morning to just look around and see these people who together are partaking of Jesus Christ with you. Let's pray and prepare ourselves to come to the Lord's Supper. God and Father, you are at work in the world and in our hearts as we come and meet with you. I pray that you would draw us to yourself. I pray that you would shape our identity so that we understand ourselves as you would have us do. And I pray that you would shape our views of each other, that we might love and delight in each other as the people of God. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.